Welcome to Postcolonial Space. I'm Masood Raja. And today I'm going to take a few moments to talk about Foucault's thoughts about disciplinarity and the creation of docile bodies. Now, to be very clear about what do I mean by disciplinarity, of course, I mean, I highly encourage you to read Foucault, but there are two phases of Foucault's work. The first one we call the archaeological Foucault, and the later works are somehow classified as genealogical Foucault. The main difference between the two is that in his archaeological phase, Foucault is fairly structuralist, but he's also focusing on how discourses of power and law shape individual human bodies or label individual humans, right? What's the impact of it on human beings? The genealogical Foucault traces the impact of law and discourses on larger populations. That's why the concept for that is governmentality. So that's done through census, through designating groups as deviant or as not up to the mark. So these are the two distinctions. Now, the most important discussion of disciplinarity and creation of docile bodies is included in Foucault's Discipline and Punish. And in that book, I mean, if you read the book, it starts with a harrowing account of a quartering, right? Which used to be the punishment for regicide. And that is an exact historical account. And as you read it, what he lays down for us is that we think when we compare our current disciplinary practices to what used to be done, we somehow always assume that, you know, we have become better. But what he tries to highlight is that in the modern incarceration system, actually the impact is deeper and more intrusive because we don't just punish the body. We also try to shape the very souls of people. And that's why in that harrowing account at the end, when Damien, the person who is being executed, when he talks to the priest, right? The priest tells him, your soul is safe, right? Your body is being destroyed, right? He has that consolation. So in order to make his point, Foucault gives us the example of this French, French incarceration system for juveniles. Right, where young people were brought in for whatever they had done, the punishment was indefinite. It was connected to they reforming themselves. And then they were regimented into family groups. They would have two elders who were also, you know, convicts leading the group. And they will have regimented chores every single day. And at the end of the evening, they all had to account for their actions. If they had done something wrong, they were punished for that. And that is what he's talking about. That these people then, they are functional. 
they are accountable, but their subjectivities are completely docile. They become part of the system to a point that during the revolution, when everyone else, French Revolution, you know, is freed and all young men in these prisons actually didn't even want to go out because they didn't know how to exist in a non-regimented world, right? So disciplinarity and creation of docile bodies then aims at shaping our very souls so that we produce human bodies that are capable of work that are capable of performing the functions that we need from them, but at the same time have no will or thought processes of their own. So in that sense, then, the modern punishment system, according to Foucault, is more destructive, right? Because it takes away the human agency from people and replaces it with a sort of subjectivity which is over-determined and shaped into this human body that can perform all the functions but has no agency of its own. That is what he's talking about. So this creation of docile bodies then in the modern incarceral system is not just part of the prison system. You, me and everyone else is also constantly being shaped into a docile body. How? Think of it. If you're a student and if you live in the United States, no one can coerce you to be obedient. No one can tell you you should not speak up. But there are systems in place. The financial aid system, scholarship system, which already dictate your behavior discursively. Because you know that your scholarship is connected to good conduct. It is connected to good grades, right? So without even someone telling you, you, you are monitoring your own self and modulating your behavior in a way you're acting as a docile body. I mean, let's go beyond that. People like me who have secure jobs, right? But if we think of leaving our job for whatever reasons, even on principles, we may not be able to do that in a system like this because what will be on your mind? How will I pay my bills, right? Who will pay for my health care? Right? All of these systems are there to keep us docile, to keep our bodies obedient. Right? Think of the American healthcare system. It is employee-provided healthcare most of the time. What purpose does it serve? You know, it serves the purpose of keeping the employees in their place because even if they are unhappy, they are not likely to revolt, they are not likely to leave because it will be hard for them to get health care. And since they can't go and get government-provided health care, that produces in them a certain kind of docility, right? a certain kind of obedience. So most of the times, you know, when you read Foucault, Obviously, these things are discursively produced. And when we use the term discursively produced, what we mean by it is that in any given living situation, there is a dominant discourse. A discourse is a body of knowledge, people who have the power to pronounce things in it, right? People who have a body of law, 
all of these things combined decide the discursive milieu right within which you me and everyone exists when that discourse combined with power prestige and institutional power forces us without us knowing it to modulate our behavior to be submissive right to at least take more punishment and to keep producing more work that means that we have been transformed not transformed but made into docile bodies and you don't just have to go to prisons to find examples of it now disciplinarity then is a kind of discourse that impacts literally how we per we perform our identities in the world right and then beyond that how do we behave conduct ourselves because a discourse already is predetermining for us our very actions so in so many ways then in the contemporary neoliberal capital right if you're a worker intellectual or part of the um, manual labor because there is no safety net and the unions have been decimated all of it then becomes a sort of a economic discourse that constantly keeps producing docile bodies precarity produces docile bodies so that the, the machine of capital as it exists right now can use our bodies and our minds knowing that we do not have many options to challenge it to change our lived conditions or to even sometimes think a different way so that's a little bit about huko disciplinarity and the creation of docile bodies i hope it is useful to you i absolutely understand that it is not all exhaustive and i may have absolutely missed something important feel free to teach me more about it but if you have some time at your disposal i highly recommend that you read discipline and punish and then make up your own mind about what i just talked about thank you so much and i will now see you next time until then as always peace and love hello welcome to post colonial space i'm masood raja and this video this conversation is one of those occasional ramblings that i offer you which are partially philosophical or reflective but not necessarily purely educational so if those things don't appeal to you you know you can check out right now but if you would like to hear me out let's talk so i was just recently watching a lecture by don norman who is the you know father or grandfather of what we call design thinking right he coined the term user centered design right and he now calls it human centered design so this is someone who is a huge name in design thinking and in programming worlds and in 
user research world, right? User experience research world. And I really love his ideas and I'm currently reading his book, The Design of Everyday Thing, Things. I highly recommend it. I'll post a link in the description. And in his interview, or it was rather a webinar, he is asked about how can designers have more influence in a world which is controlled by, of course, those who own the mode of production. And one of his suggestions is, which I partially agree with, is that designers should try to move upwards and become part of the decision-making group. This is something that we always do in our faculty meetings too, right? That faculty should become part of the administration. And our idea is that somehow when they are in the positions of power, they'll make policies that will take into account the needs of the students and the faculty. That is what we believe, right? And I think that's exactly what Don Norman also is suggesting that if more and more designers are in decision-making places in different companies, corporations, then they can impact the world because they won't just be designing as someone wants them to, they will actually be trying to solve the problems, right? Because at the core of his argument is that design thinking, thinking of the world as a system and within that smaller systems and, and, and looking for underlying causes of symptomatic problems, right? hunger and everything else, that the design teams or designers are better equipped to do that because they are not specialists, right? But they are focused on the problem end of the question because their motivation comes from the people that they are trying to serve, right? Whether it's for profit or just to make the world better. And I really loved that he, you know, a senior scholar and practitioner of design uh, is actually has made it a mission to argue for this. But here is my own understanding of this in the academy, but also in life. I think we can do that. We can rise up and maybe change the system from the top. But remember, in the process of rising up in any given organization or any given system, there are compromises that we make. We have to conform to the system so that we are not a threat to it, right? We have to learn to survive in it, right? In any given place, it takes 20 to 25 years to reach the executive positions. The problem is, that by the time we get to that point, we have already made so many compromises that we somehow always become part of the system and start seeing the world from the top and forget about where we came from. This has been a great philosophical problem. In Muslim history, for example, I think it was from the from the Abbasid Empire, there was a powerful wazir, right? one of the most powerful ministers of the caliph. And every day, you know, around two o'clock, and this is an apocryphal story, this is not a factual historical story, but the mythology is important, right? Uh, he would retire into a small room for about an hour. 
and then come back and join the court and everything else. And you know, after a while, people started pointing to it. What does he do in there? Why does he go in there? And it was reported to the caliph, of course. An investigation was launched. So finally, he takes those people to that room. And there is nothing in there except for a few rags, which look like a costume, a tunic that someone might have worn, some really shabby looking sandals, and a few other things. And people asked him, what is this? And he's like, this is what I wore when I came to Baghdad. This was all I owned, material things. So every day when I'm dealing with power, right, I come back to this room once a day to remind myself that this is where I came from, right? Now, obviously, we all cannot have a room like that, right? But we should take 20, 30 minutes, wherever we are, in whatever powerful position we, we might be, to remember how we got here, who helped us. Where were our loyalties when we started? Who were our people, right? And maybe that would inculcate in us this habit, this self-reflection, which reminds us that when we made this decision to rise in this system, the purpose was to change the system, to make it fair, to make it, make it egalitarian, to make it about saving the world, doing great things in the world, right? Because without that memory, Without that reminder, chances are, as all systems do, the system, whichever it is, will incorporate you within its logic. So anecdotally, like the myth that I told you, the story is a good story to remember, but then create maybe a symbolic memory of where you came from, right? Or what your aspirations were when you were young, when you were starting. Another writer and practitioner who can help us think through this is Paulo Freire. Okay? What Freire teaches us that our actions in the world need to be connected in solidarity with other human beings. Not the human beings who have power, but those who are powerless, those who are silenced. And that if we remember that our project in life is to speak with the oppressed, right? To keep our loyalties with them, to keep those who are overworked, contingent faculty, whatever, right? Wherever you are. Then, chances are that we'll constantly keep retraining ourselves into our priorities, right? We'll stay focused on what we had set out to do, right? To help people. Do not tell them this is how things are done, right? So, it's not a deeply philosophical way of thinking of it, but this is how I remember where I came from. This is how I always deal with things, right? If a student sends me a question, I remember how I felt as an international student. If someone from across the world sends me a message, I put myself in their shoes. And remember, this is part of design thinking. This is part of 
user experience research, empathy, cognitive empathy, putting yourself in the shoes of the other. Here is this person writing me an email all the way from northern Pakistan asking me a question, right? Maybe anxious about the answer, not sure if I'll reply. So what is the least I can do is at least acknowledge that message, right? Write back. If I can help, offer my help. If I can give some guidance, give them some guidance. Or if I cannot help, at least acknowledge, thank you, right? But I cannot help much. Even that sometimes is enough. How do you remember that is by placing yourself empathetically into the shoes of this other person and by remembering in your own life the moments when you had to seek help from others, right? If you are in a position of power, right? Most of us forget that. Most of us forget about the people. Most of us even forget those who helped us along the way, right? But the purpose is to remember and create symbols and icons and living, breathing, you know, memories of those instances. So to conclude, I absolutely love what Don Norman says in his Design for 21st Century. You can find the whole uh, lecture on um, Interaction Design website. You might have to pay a little bit for it, but I'll post the link uh, in the description. But overall, absolutely, I agree that designers in his case and academics in my case should try to reach positions of power in the administration where they are decision makers. But when they do that, they have to leave themselves signposts along the way. They have to remember where they came from. They have to constantly be connected to the people, right? And they have to constantly question themselves, am I becoming part of the system? And if they are, then they have to figure out ways of undoing that so that they can stay true to what they thought their mission was, right? These are some of my thoughts. You know, we live in large, powerful systems. They shape our bodies and our consciousness and, and our very souls, right? How do we remain human? How do we remain like people who care about others? How we keep our compassion, our care for the others, I think, is through these memories and is through constant reminders of what we had planned to do in our lives and learning from the people, learning from your students, from your co-workers, from activists, right? From thinkers everywhere in the world, constantly learning. I hope this was useful to you. Let me know in the comments what you think. I know it's not an educational conversation per se, but I think sometimes we all need these kind of conversations. I think we all need to think about these things, right? And this was one of those days for me. Thank you so much. I hope you're taking care of each other. Please continue to do so. As always, I will now see you next time. Until then, from me to you, peace and love.